You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, I am delighted to bring you Joel Green. Now, full disclosure, I am apparently late to the party on this because whenever I mention Joel's name to anybody in the biohacking community, they immediately go, oh, I love Joel. Joel is an OG biohacker. And he's the author of the book, The Immunity Code, which I've only just read, and I can't believe it's taken me this many years to get around to it. It is a new paradigm for real health and radical anti-aging. He's also just released his brand new book called The Way, which is equally as fantastic. Joel's approach to anti-aging, longevity, and weight loss is so unique. It's an immune-centric approach. This is something I've tried to articulate throughout my content over the years, and it's a very difficult concept for people to wrap their heads around, but your immune system is actually driving the whole show. And when your immune system goes sideways and goes into a pro-inflammatory state, that's when the wheels start falling off the car. So we had a fantastic conversation. I know you're going to love this one. Get ready to take some notes and let's jump in. You've likely heard that certain supplements are nature's ozempic. And while that's not entirely true, there are certain molecules that do help turn on our own natural endogenous production of GLP-1. The supplement that I prefer due to its multiple beneficial actions and supported by lots of data is sodium butyrate. Butyrate can impact the hormone GLP-1 by altering the behavior of certain cells in our gut that naturally produce GLP-1. Butyrate doesn't directly communicate with GLP-1, but it does change how these cells operate. Think of butyrate like a switch that can turn on or off the production of GLP-1 by affecting the genes and elements inside these cells. Sodium butyrate also supports healthy blood sugar regulation and metabolic health by promoting balanced insulin sensitivity and optimizing the body's utilization of glucose. And my favorite brand of sodium butyrate is by BodyBio. Right now, you can save 20% off when you head to bodybio.com and use the code DRTINA20 at checkout. That's bodybio.com and code DRTYNA20 at checkout. So I admittedly am not big on skincare. I'm nearly 50, and to say that I've slacked on my skin is a total understatement. I've recently noticed some changes, however, that I'm not loving. And so I finally decided to get serious. A few months ago, I reached out to my buddy, Andy, the CEO and founder of Alatura Naturals, and asked him to help. He sent me the complete skincare line. And if you've not heard of Alatura yet, let me introduce you to the most natural and luxurious lotions and potions to ever grace my face. Alatura is handcrafted natural skincare. Their mission is simple, to provide customers a skincare wellness experience with products made of superior natural ingredients packed with nutrients, minerals, and natural growth factors. Alatura is the line I've been looking for and it checks off all the boxes for me. It's all natural, it's cruelty-free, it's non-toxic, it's non-GMO, and it is organic when possible. My absolute favorites are the clay mask to detoxify and really heal my skin, as well as the night cream to boost collagen and deeply moisturize. The night cream also triples as an eye and lip balm and a little bit goes a long way. Honorable mentions are the pearl cleanser and the absolutely heavenly gold serum. You can literally feel the magic of the gold serum immediately upon application. It's that good. Because I believe everybody should try Alatura, I've partnered with them and listeners of the Dr. Tina Show can save 20% off your first order by heading to alatura.com. That's A-L-I-T-U-R-A.com. And be sure to use code Dr. Tina at checkout for the discount. That's Dr. Tina with a Y or simply click the link in the show notes. You're going to love it. 
Joel Green, thank you so much for coming on the Dr. Tina Show. I am a huge fan of yours. I have been stalking you on Instagram, and I grabbed your book, your 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 uh, the Immunity Code. I know that you're the author of that, and you've got your new book out. And I had to get you on the show. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, thank you for having me. It's it's been great chatting with you. Yeah, yeah. So introduce yourself for the audience because you've got a really interesting background. Um, I am a male. <laughs> in space. <laughs> Coming to you here from orbit. Meanwhile, back on Earth. <laughs> for those for those watching on YouTube, you will see the space background. <laughs> I know. Yes, the, the wonder of green screens. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so I basically am a lifelong uh, fitness nerd, um, starting about when I was five with Jackal Lane. And just my whole life with fitness was kind of part of my life. And then I was just an early adopter for a lot of stuff. And I wound up... Um, I was I was an athlete. I did track and field, and I uh, along the way just kind of was a bodybuilding nerd, you know, from the very beginning, like following Frank Zane from you know the '70s and blah blah blah. And so I was just kind of an early adopter of a lot of things, um, going all the way back, way back. Some just some buzzwords to drop here, like in the in the '80s, it was hot stuff, and it was. Um, uh, with cybergenics and, and uh, Mensner's, you know, stuff like heavy duty. In the '90s, it was you know the Zone and Metrex and the Zone, yes, yeah. And then, um, gosh, late '90s, it was the Body for Life challenges, and then it was kind of um, everything whole, fresh, raw, and you know all that. And so, um, just but my life was really spent mostly just as a consumer in the real world. So, um, what happened to me was I. I had a period in the early 2000s where I got laid off from my dot-com job and I started this, um, just making websites for fitness, fitness, fitness stars, like really big fitness stars started making their websites. And so I had time to work out and I got, you know, I, and I'd been on this foray over the, the previous 10 years, just kind of getting ripped and then getting out of it and kind of, kind of getting into the dietology of like, you know, like seeing firsthand, like a lot of the stuff that really works up front, like it's kind of kicking me in the rear, like later on down the line, like um, just getting into like out of control eating from strict dieting and stuff like that. And long story short, I wound up um, going into the tech industry like 2003. And um, so a little dirty secret of today's health industry is a lot of the same people were exactly, we were all in this really small circle, kind of all knew each other. And, and then we wound up here. And so I wound up running this tech company and it was a startup. So I, I got fat. I was working 14 hour days. I got fat. Um, and literally just, it, it was kind of the same story you hear a lot of people talk about where I had no time to work out. Like like the the schedule was just, you know, getting to work, at work, meetings, pressure, and just the life a lot of people experience where um, I would say the vast majority of, of advice that you get from quote-unquote fitness will not translate into that. And a, a running joke I've had for a long time is let's take all the influencers and do a reality show where they have to go get real jobs. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and then you film them. <laughs> so you see what they're taking, you know, and all that. And um, so anyways, I came out of that. I was fat and I was, I, I was kind of like, I was really like in this place of, wow, I just spent 30 years doing all the stuff Arnold and Frank and all these guys told me to do. And I'm fat. Like this was 2006. And, and it was, you know, I just really spent some time kind of thinking through what could have been different. And out of that came this emphasis on longevity and understanding how to use food. And, you know, it took me into this place of, I really wanted to help people and I quickly found no one really cared. Um, people just wanted to just, you know, I just want to lose 10 pounds. That's, I, I don't care about all your other stuff. So, yes. so, I, so I created this uh, software 
um, back in 2007. It took a couple of years to create it and launched it in 2008, 2009. And um, got kind of lucky, had some... It was a, basically a nutrition software. And I took all this research that um, I had just been inundated with put it into that and, and the gut biome came out of that. The micro, I've been tinkering with the microbiome since 2007. In fact, I, I wrote the very first that I know of, the very first article on using the microbiome for weight loss um, back in 2007. I published that. Wow. That's, that's yeah, that's OG. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, so the system I created, the software was actually based on a lot of this stuff. And there was an article published in 2009 called um, Dietary um, or Gut Communities Are Rapidly Modifiable by Cruciferous Vegetables. And I kind of took all that, put it in the system. And then we went and did corporate wellness for a number of years. And I, so the, the advantage there was I was just doing these big, big engagements, like thousands of people, cities, really big companies that were coming through my corporate wellness system using this software. And I... I was able to just kind of harvest massive amounts of data and get tons and tons of results, literally literally in the tens of thousands of results with people and kind of figure out what worked, what didn't work and congealed all that. Um, uh, I did during that, during that period, it was just a lot of ups and downs, going broke, making money, going broke, <laughs> you know, figuring out what, the, you know, what I did. The entrepreneur's know. life, right? Oh, it was, yeah, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially, oh, and note to you, anybody that ever wants to do a soft, a software, not unless you have 20 million bucks. I, I hear that. I hear that. I hear that. Don't even try to launch an app without. No, just, just, and get 20 million bucks. Cause you're, you're two, two engineers, two high end engineers. Now are going to cost you a half million to a million a year for two people. Wow. You know, and that, and you're not going to get anywhere with that. You're going to need more. So, but anyways, um, all this led to, I did some consulting with Quest Nutrition at the time and they were kind of on their peak rise. And um, uh, the founder of Quest, Ron, uh, the real founder of Quest, Ron Penna, <laughs> he created uh, kind of a round table of, just brought a bunch of smart people together. And um, I, it was then, this was about 2015, um, uh, 2016, I decided to write what became the immunity code. That took three years. I wrote that. And then I went on Ben Greenfield's podcast and it kind of just exploded. And um, basically in the jet wash of that, a lot of the protocols that were introduced in that book just became mainstream. So there was no mouth taping prior to that book. Like the immunity code is what launched mouth taping. It's what launched, you know, doing wow. the whole night. It was, it didn't exist. You can go back to Mark Bell's um show on 2018 when I introduced it on his show and then trace it from there. And that's when it spread. And the whole thing with doing um, cold plunging and sprints and deadlifts, that all came from the immunity code. All the acromancia, you know, bifidobac, that all came from the immunity code. So um, the book's been, you know, criticized for just stupid errors and stuff. But in terms of influence, it's probably one of the more influential books of the last, you know, five, 10 years. Um, and uh, I wasn't going to do another book because it nearly took my soul doing that one. But um, one thing I did notice was like, I thought I had just solved the problem of diet in that book. And I realized in hindsight, now people are just totally confused. And there were major problems that I hadn't addressed. And so the impetus of the new book was really two things. It was to, um, it was to advance diet significantly forward. Um, and it was to con end confusion, to to take the confusion that exists with diet today and give people a framework where they could return to sense, their own sense or ancient sense, and you could apply sense. And that way you could not be, you know, if you have two conflicting authority figures, you could just use your own sense to figure it out. So yes. that was the impetus there. Well, it's the Immunity Code is such a good book. I, I got my hands on it and 
You're right. I mean, all of the things that you talk about in there have basically become the landscape of Instagram these days, you know, and that's that's the problem with Instagram is people just pick up one thing and then everybody runs with it. You know, it's like, oh, this is the ball, you know, the ball of the week. Let's let's, you know, and it's it's like all the rage. But it's really it's a great book. It's I I followed it very easily. I think that it's probably above a lot of people's heads if they're not super, you know, I mean, the average person isn't maybe understanding some of the science, but man, it's so comprehensive and it's fun too, because it reminds me of a textbook, to be totally honest with you. It, you can just open it and there it, you open it and you're like, okay, I'm just going to chew through this chapter. And then it's, you know what I mean? So I, I really like that because I'm an academic and I, at heart, I'm a scientist. And so for me, I think, it, you know, great, great book. And then just when I got in contact with you to try to get you on the show, you were working on the new book, The Way. And I, I had to cancel on you. And then we ended up, I didn't want to bug you for a minute because I was watching you launch the book. And I'm like, that's probably just a crazy time. <laughs> so I'm just going to wait till he gets a hold of me again. So I'm so glad to finally have you here because there's so many questions I want to ask you. And I'm hoping we can tie it all together so it makes sense for the audience because sometimes I get super smart people on here and we nerd out on science. And then the audience emails me and says, I can't understand anything that you just said. <laughs> so my podcast producer will tell me it's above his pay grade if we don't make this we got to make it the, the fifth grade version. Um, I want to hit on something you, t- you mentioned that you had in your own experience. I've had in my own experience, which is literally why I found you. Um, the whole concept of that long-term low-carb, high-protein diet and what it does to your body and how it can actually induce insulin resistance. Can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this gets to... Um, so what I mentioned in the new book, I just come... I hit you in the face with the, with the notion that um, there are a number of absolutely unavoidable realities. An unavoidable reality is something that you will have to deal with. It's unavoidable. You're gonna. It's just when. And the most important of these that diets of this age are completely disconnected from. And when I say this, it sounds like, oh, you're just trying to sell your book, right? It's like, no, you've never written a book. You don't understand. (laughs) There's no money in books. Um, Right. No, because I I've always been very concerned with what's true and things that I have found in hindsight over 50 plus years to be true. You know, the, the idea is let's put truth out there. The truth is, is that the diets at this age are just disconnected from the reality of time. And it's easy to see, super easy to see. So when you when you look at and talk about like, you know, low carb, high protein and start talking about it, the assumption is, well, it's only good. I mean, it's just only good, Right until you ask what point in time. And, and, and if you ask that question to, you could ask that to a dozen smarties and, and they will, it, it's like a record skip. They're like, what? what? What What did you just say? I said, at what point in time is it good? What do you mean? What do you mean? What point in time is it good? What, what are you trying to say? <laughs> and and the, so the truth is there's very good research on uh, long-term high protein, low carb diets that they actually induce insulin resistance. And there's a number of mechanisms that have been established that show why this is true. But what I do in the book, just to make it super easy to understand is um, I call this the four, you know, physics has the four fundamental forces. Um, Mm -hmm. There kind of really are four basic forces that work over time. And it's easy to see. Again, you don't need an expert. You just need sense. So there's accumulation. Over time, if you're doing any given protocol, doesn't matter what it is, something will accumulate somewhere, okay? There is degradation. Means if you do too much of something for too long, something somewhere is going to degrade, 
over time, okay? There is um, attenuation. If you do something for a long time, the 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 all of the all the all of the different mechanisms that surround that mechanism are going to attenuate. Right. In other words, like receptors, receptors attenuate yeah. over time. Neurons attenuate over time. It's really the, easy. To, the payoff gets less and less. Yeah, and so we can just go. Um, and then there's compensation. Compensation is the final of the four. So whenever you throw something at the body, there's a compens compensatory effect. There's a compensation that takes place. And so there's, we could use dozens of examples here to show this is true. The example I use in the book is um, excessive high protein, excessive fasting long term. Let's apply those ideas. Let's apply accumulation, degradation, and compensation and just see what happens. So what you're going to get is long term, you're going to get a compensation in the colon. The colon's going to alkalize from excessive protein. Okay. That's not good. I know we've been brainwashed to think that alkalinity is good, acidity is bad but it's compartment specific. So yes. when we're talking about the colon, colon needs to be slightly acidic. Mm -hmm. And the result of the colon going alkaline even just a bit is catastrophic. It's catastrophic because it becomes a cancer promoting environment when the colon gets alkaline, okay? So that is an example of a compensation that happens when you do something too long. In this case, high protein. You're doing it way too, you know. And, and by the way, it's, it's worth mentioning that the research tends to define high protein as 25 to 35% of diet. What we're seeing wow. nowadays is like 70, 80% of diet right. protein. You know, we're seeing these incredibly high protein levels uh, sustained over time. Um, another example is degradation. Okay, so let's take that. So the average person by the time they are 60, and, and, and again, you don't need an expert, you just need sense to figure this out has about 70% of their kidney function left. And you're losing 1% per year, even if you're healthy, mm -hmm. healthy. So you hear this chatter online like, high protein intakes are just no risk whatsoever unless you have kidney issues. Who doesn't? <laughs> okay. The organs don't work as well as you get older. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an unavoidable reality. And so when you are, they're not a, they're not a set of tires with unlimited tread. Right. They they are they wear out, and so if you're shoving these massive high protein intakes in on a regular basis, there's a degradation that takes place in the kidneys. Okay, and we can go down this list, and I can show you step by step. Another would be um, accumulation. So, if we take Fusobacteria, which is a cancer promoting bacteria, and it ferments meat. Now, the really interesting thing is in dogs, Fusobacteria fermentation makes them super healthy. <laughs> And it's, it's one of the ways you can reverse engineer what there's, what you can reverse engineer what you should eat just by what you get in terms of bacteria. Mm -hmm. So dogs are pure meat eaters. Uh, my friend Ron Penna has this ranch in Texas where he's curing cancer in dogs and, and they feed them their real diets. They feed them like, you know, meat diets and they get well. Um, and they ferment fusobacteria and they get well. In humans, fusobacteria is a known cancer promoter and you get it from fermenting protein in the colon. So wow. about 10 to 15 grams of protein will pass through the small intestine to reach um, the colon every day and it ferments. And what does it ferment? It ferments fusobacteria. Now in a balanced diet, that's not a big deal. In fact, there's research on this that's shown that if you have balance in the diet, you have things like inulins and fermenting fibers in the gut. It actually shifts the locus of fermentation in the gut away from fusobacteria and you neutralize the negative effects. And we'll get into this later. It's how diversity protects you. But basically, 
If you just have like just meat and that's all you're eating, you're getting an accumulation of fusobacteria in the gut. And then at the same time, you're getting a you're you're losing the commensal bacteria. So you're losing bifidobacteria. You're losing like all of these commensal bacteria that we need. And so all that to say, time matters. Time is inescapable. And that the same diet that works incredibly well at one point in time can be detrimental at another point in time. Mm -hmm. And the variable is time. And once you get your arms around this, it, it changes the entire landscape because all of a sudden the question is at what point in time becomes the most important question. And you hear it with everything. Oh, is fasting good? At what point in time? What do you mean? Right. What? What's always good? At uh, what point? It's it's so challenging too because people on social media want things to be so black and white and they want them to be so polarizing and they want them to be so clear. And I have often, my response to most people is it depends. It dep I mean, it depends on the person sitting in front of me that I've run labs on that I'm working with, right? And I can't make a blanket statement about nutrition online and whenever I've leaned, I, I only share what I eat. So I don't tell people how to eat. I just tell them what I eat. And whenever I've shared that, people get so hostile because they want it to be this way or that way. And it's like, yo, we're, we're animals. We're fancy mammals with opposable thumbs. We're different ages. We have different, like you said, organ function. We are going, another thing I believe that's inevitable is we will become more insulin resistant as we age just by the fact of how our muscles are atrophying and sarcopenia is working and, you know, we're working against that constantly. And I, that's the hard part. It's like, how old is this person? What are their other concomitant risk factors? Also the kid, the kidney thing you mentioned, it, most folks who have insulin resistance, which is what, like the bulk of Americans at this point, they have kid, some kidney issues. So like they're already rocking kidney issues. So it's like, that's a hard thing to answer folks on Instagram, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I get it. Um, it actually segues into a really good topic, which is um, insulin. And Yeah, let's talk about the, insulin. The insulin family of hormones. So this, this again is one of these things that you don't need an expert here. You just need a little bit of info and sense to figure this out. But basically, it's when you look at insulin and how insulin works and you look at insulin over time and you look at age, what you come up with is insulin is not working by itself. It is actually working in a family of hormones. And specifically, like when you go through and you look at you know, the family of insulin hormones, you have GLP-1, you have GIP, you have glucagon, you have adiponectin, you have insulin. And then all of that, rests on the foundation of the microbiome, meaning that interactions between the taxa in the gut and the taxa interacting with things like bile acids and other things um, directly affects the hormones that affect insulin and a number of other things. So, so that's the insulin picture is it isn't just insulin. It's, it's the, the specific phenotype or the, rather the enterotype of bacteria in the gut. And then it's these other hormones. So a really interesting discussion is adiponectin. So there's, there's no diet today none that account for adiponectin, especially over time. And what's very interesting is when you look at adiponectin, every disease that you can think of that is age-related is associated to low adiponectin. And one of the reasons is that, so adiponectin is an adipokine. It's a, it's a hormone secreted by body fat. It does a number of things. One of the most important things it does is it makes insulin work a heck of a lot better. It makes insulin sensitive. And so this is one of the reasons that it's kind of a rich get richer, poor get poorer. When, when people get really lean, 
and they get lean while they're making more adiponectin and then their insulin sensitivity is better and then everything's easier. They can eat more. Conversely, as you get older, you start to accumulate fat, you accumulate the wrong kinds of fat um, in the wrong places and adiponectin secretion decreases. And so what you see with adiponectin in age is these one-to-one correlations between lowering adiponectin, increases in visceral fat, increases in insulin resistance, increases in cancer, increases in um, Alzheimer's and most importantly, um, a decrease in the ability to handle saturated fats. Yes. Yeah. Talk about that too. Yeah. So, so saturated fats is, you know, one of these topics that is just infinitely confusing. And I I talk about it quite a bit in the new book um, because it's part of what I would call a must have mechanism. So one of the things you see a lot with age is that you, you just hear like, I just can't lose weight anymore. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I calorie count. Doesn't, I can't lose weight. Okay. And what you're seeing, what the new generation of drugs, the GLP-1 agonists are making clearly abundantly evident is that, yeah, you're insulin resistant. And as soon as you get insulin sensitive, boom, you know, the, 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 the ocean parts and the cloud, oh, you know, I'm losing weight. Yay. <laughs> you know, but along with that, there is another set of mechanisms that really explain a lot. And they are under woefully underrepresented. And once you get this, it changes diet completely. And it has to do with changes in the vasculature over time. So the vasculature has one major job, and that is to get glucose and oxygen into cells. Okay. Life depends on glucose and oxygen going into cells. If either one of those two things goes to zero at any given time, you're dead immediately. Immediately. So what happens over time with the vasculature is there are a couple really, really critical mechanisms that um, kind of are like the tread on the tire or the shock absorbers on the car. They just, they just get worn out. One of them is the NOx enzymes, okay? And these are a family of enzymes. And what's interesting about these enzymes is they line the vasculature. They line what's called the endothelium. What's interesting about these enzymes is they are the only enzymes in the entire body that we know of that are pro-oxidative in their, in their nature, meaning that their job is to make free radicals. There's no other enzyme we know of that does that. Now, the reasons for that have a lot to do with getting glucose into cells. Um, basically, without going into a lot of techie stuff, they act as a dimmer switch on glucose transport and insulin sensitivity. So when we take in glucose, glucose by its nature is inflammatory and the NOx enzymes make free radicals so that dilates the vasculature and that's all good. That's great. Um, What happens is we get older is the accelerator gets stuck. The cruise control gets stuck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so they begin putting out free radicals into the vasculature way above the ability of things like insulin to deal with. And at the same time, so insulin by its nature is anti-inflammatory. Insulin normally quenches, you know, there's a balance between uh, nitric oxide and then insulin and all this works together to make the vasculature work. So as we get older, we begin to make less nitric oxide um, and the nitric oxide that we do make is less bioavailable. Mm-hmm. So the, one of the problems we get into is that when you do make nitric oxide as you're older, you have these free radicals now just spitting, or you have these enzymes spitting free radicals out into the vasculature. And that is catastrophic, catastrophic for the vasculature. Because what happens is essentially the vasculature begins to get inflamed. So imagine, you know, the 
the, the mechanism tasked with getting glucose and oxygen everywhere in the body is inflamed itself. So the whole body's going to be inflamed now when that happens. Yeah. This works in conjunction with another mechanism called the glycocalyx. Mm -hmm. So the glycocalyx, um, basically, the easy way to understand it is it's fur that lines the vasculature. It's like, it's like, it's like fur that just pops in the vasculature. The job of the glycocalyx is that it's a mechanical sensor. It's a tension sensor. And so we've all heard of leaky gut. We've all heard of that. Like, you know, that's not bad. Uh, that's bad. You don't want to have that. Well, you can have leaky vessels. You can have leaky vasculature. And in the same way that the gut junctions can open up and let bad things in, the vascular junctions can open up and let bad things out. So what happens is immune cells will pop out um, and we change names. When they're inside the vasculature, we, we use one name. We call them macrophages. When they pop out, or we call them monocytes. Mm -hmm. When they pop out, we call them macrophages. But the bottom line is um, they adhere they adhere to the external of the vasculature and a bunch of different things happen. But long story short, that is, that is one of the drivers of vascular disease. You start to see essentially what amounts of zits inside of the vasculature, more or less. That's really what they are. You know, it's, um, yeah, that's but a it's, good way to put it. It's due to the decline of when you see one of the things that's just way underaccounted for is the, is the hyperexpression of the NOx enzymes together with the decline of the glycocalyx. And it completely changes the way the body reacts to things. Mm -hmm. So you can take the exact same person at age 25, age 35, who has no issues with the glycocalyx, no issues with the NOx enzymes. They can eat saturated fats until the cows come home. Never going to be a problem. Take that same person and you induce NOx overexpression and glycocalyx destruction and saturated fats now become this lethal mechanism. Same person, same person, just different wow. points in time. Yeah. And so it changes the equation of are saturated fats good? And then we bring in our answer at what point in time? If you followed me for any amount of time, you know that I'm constantly beating the drum on having optimal metabolic health, especially as we age, especially as we are walking into menopause and andropause. Hands down, my favorite biohacking device for this is the NutriSense Continuous Glucose Monitor Program. This program comes complete with an awesome app that shows you all the graphs, registered dietitians that are experts in helping you interpret that information. And they get how I suggest eating, like they get it. They're on the tip. There's a Facebook group for accountability and community and so much more. The NutriSense CGM program will help you make better lifestyle choices that may help you avoid chronic conditions down the line. 94% of Americans have busted metabolisms, guys. This is a problem. I've teamed up with NutriSense and they are generously giving listeners of the Dr. Tina show $30 off any subscription to any of their programs right now. Well, I highly suggest committing to three to six months of this. I myself do it quarterly. My metabolism is pretty dialed in. Even if you do it for a month, regardless, you get two monitors per month. You've, they've got 14 days use on them. They're painless. They're easy to apply. You hardly know they're even there. Use the link in the show notes and use the coupon code Tina D-R-T-Y-N-A, to get $30 off your first subscription. I highly suggest you give this a try, especially if you're trying to make 2023, like I am, the hottest and happiest year yet. I've been a low-carb gal for a long time, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I've only recently learned in the past few years that all low-carb folks should know 
is how critically important electrolytes are to supplement. Electrolytes facilitate hundreds of functions in the body, including the conduction of nerve impulses, hormonal regulation, nutrient absorption, and fluid balance. Common issues like headaches, muscle cramps, fatigue, sleeplessness may simply be a lack of electrolytes. Adequate electrolyte intake can boost performance and recovery in the gym as well. And most importantly, they support the low-carb lifestyle that many of us follow. My new favorite electrolyte product is by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. This means a science-backed electrolyte ratio with none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. Simply adding a daily packet of Element into my routine has given me more energy, less cramping, and improved mood overall. I even think it's helping my sleep. I've teamed up with Element and they've been gracious enough to offer a free gift with purchase to listeners of the Dr. Tina show. The free gift Element sample pack includes one packet of every flavor. This is the perfect gift for anyone who's interested in trying all of their flavors. My favorite is the raspberry salt. They offer a no questions asked refund on all orders. So if you don't like it, you don't even have to send it back. This offer is exclusively available to Dr. Tina show listeners. So be sure to use the link in the show notes and take advantage of it now. Head to the link drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Tina. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Tina. Yeah, that's because that, this is exactly what was happening to me. I was dealing with some severe gastrointestinal issues. I had a terrible parasite I picked up in Mexico and I've always had gut issues, but things were getting really bad. So I went back to my age old diet that I'd put patients on whenever they were in a flare, which was high beef, high coconut oil, <laughs> like all the saturated fat and blueberries. I call it the beef and blueberry diet. And it's a great reset, but it's not something that I would encourage people to stay on forever. And I stayed on it too long. And next thing I know, and I, I mean, I'm hitting that like 49 year old point, 48, 49, and the wheels just start falling off sideways. And I was like, something is wrong. And I kept telling everyone like something is wrong. And my psoriatic arthritis flared and everything was going sideways. And I was like, okay, so the, the, the carnivore diet made, calmed down the immune system there and got the, the gut improvement. I had to also do, you know, some parasitic cleanse. And I got the psoriatic arthritis to calm down when I got the gut cleaned up, you know, that was fueling that fire. But I could not wrap my head around. I have always been thin and I've always been able to just focus on that. Like it's not, when once I make the decision to lose five, 10 pounds, it just falls right off. And it's never been a challenge for me. And sometimes I'll bump up a little bit and wait, but it's, you know, next thing I know, I'm, I'm, the harder I'm trying, I'm 20 pounds heavier. And I'm like, something is wrong. I felt like a switch had been blown in my brain. That's all I could describe it as. It was like the middle age, menopausal, whoop. I'm not menopausal yet. I'm, I still cycle regularly, but something had blown in my brain. And I started studying GLP-1 agonists. And I was like, I think that is going to reset the switch. I have whatever this is, whatever this like switch that needs to happen. And I started microdosing them as an experiment. And it was, it was like the C parted. And it's just the tiniest little dose. It's the tiniest, it's like a fifth of the starting dose that most people get put on. And I it's been miraculous. And suddenly, because what I had done was reintroduce carbohydrates into my diet. And that's when the 20 pounds ballooned. And I'm like, oh shit, I am that person. I am the person who was too low carb for too long. And now I am dealing with it in menopause. And this is a nightmare. And I know how this goes for my family. They all turn into round little diabetic butterballs. <laughs> and I was not having it. And uh, I mean, I was, I, I couldn't, 
if I even like looked at honey, I would b- blow up. You know, I was like, something is wrong with this. Is not my metabolism. This is my mom's metabolism. This is not me. And uh, GLP one agonists have been such a godsend, being able to cycle those as needed and get that back under control and be able to eat those carbohydrates so that I can have the fuel in the gut that I need and the fiber and the things that I had been avoiding because I was trying to keep myself lean. And anyway, it, I, I made a, over many decades, I think I induced a bit of a mess in my body. So, and that's, that's honestly when I found you and you were speaking truths and answers I hadn't heard anyone talk about. And I heard you say something on one of your reels on Instagram. You were like, there is no diet to account for adiponectin and some of these other things. And I was like, damn, he's right. <laughs> this is this is mind blowing. And like, it's not a doctor saying this, right? It's just like a guy who's been a smart dude who's been studying this for decades. That's, I'm going that way. So anyway, that's that's my rant. My, that's my little personal saga. But anyway, um, so go back to, go back to, so you talk about adiponectin um, and you talk about also, I want to touch on this, the rebound of fat loss. Let's talk about that too. Cause that's another thing that I think I definitely did to myself. It's like, you lose too much weight. What are the, what are the molecules that are upregulated during that process that actually add to the weight regain that you talk about in your books? Yeah. Um, so this is one of those topics that um, we are at the very beginning of like a, the birthing of a new idea that, that, that will absolutely 100% transform what we've been baked into because it's truth. It's just truth. And, and everybody over time will find that out for themselves. It's just a question of when. And it really has to do with um, high level. If you just use sense, again, you, know, you don't need to be an expert, just use sense. Our bodies are designed to protect us from dying. Okay. <laughs> and throughout most of human history, um, there were no refrigerators and food was often scarce. And so the result of that, in fact, in the new book, I talk about this. There's, there's basically four rhythms you'll find in nature. There is um, famine. Famine is you just can't find anything. Famines have been common throughout history. They just, they just are. So if, if our bodies didn't adapt to periodic famines, there'd be no human race. We wouldn't be here talking about it. Um, and so what happens is, long story short, it's a simple concept, is that every time there's a famine, the body learns and gets better at not dying. That's the simple yes. way to understand it. It gets better at putting the weight back that you lost and protecting you from the next famine, okay? And it learns rapidly from this. And there's all these, it's really fascinating when you study it. Like there's all these mechanisms. It isn't one, it isn't two, it isn't 10. It's like 20, 30 mechanisms. Any one of which you could explain you know, any one of which would be a career for an influencer online. No, no, I know why you can't lose weight. It's this one mechanism. And it would be 100% true. And it would be one of like 30 other truths that are 100% right. true. <laughs> so, so noteworthy though, kind of in that. But, but just let me give the big picture here, which is what most people are going to experience over time is they're going to see, you know, somebody get some great result doing something. The latest is, you know, Dana White went to Gary Brecca and got the, and so everybody's like, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? Right. You know, and, and he's just doing keto diets. That's what he's doing. Uh, and water fasts and simple stuff. Okay. It was actually a bone broth fast. He's like, I water fasted, but I drank bone broth. I'm like, that's not a water fast, dude. Water fast, bone broth, TRT, keto. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. It's a methylation. Like get get your methylation in, in, in check, right? Yeah. Take some B vitamins, whatever. 
So, <laughs> but what you don't see, what you're not thinking about is what that picture is going to look like in five or 10 years. Because, and this is now, it's, it's, it's documented in the, if anybody makes it a point to go look up the mechanisms, the rebound effect, you're going to find science paper to science paper talking about this, that essentially there is a unique phase, a period of time post fat loss where the body is trying to fix the problem and genes are activating, proteins are activating, neurons are reconfiguring, all kinds of things are happening towards one goal, which is to regain the lost weight. Now, you don't see that typically in the fitness ecosystem because there's a counter mechanism, which is because you're paid to get fit, you just keep working out all the time, all the time, and all your time goes to working out. So you don't see the rebound effect. But in the real life world, that's all you see is the rebound effect. Okay. And basically, there's a lot of new research on this. One of the most notable mechanisms is what's called synaptic amplification. Synaptic amplification. What that means is there are synapses in the brain. Synapses is a gap between a neuron. And specifically as it con concerns food intake, um, we have two sets of neurons that kind of um, are in the picture of GLP-1 and why they work. And it's um, the, the, the kind of, let's call them the good neurons, um, is the POMC neurons, um, propio-melanocortin system. It's part of the melanotan, melanocortin system. Um, melanocortin system. And basically, these neurons kind of suppress food intake. And they are activated by the GLP-1 um, receptors in the gut. So... Um, when you have food come in, they activate GLP-1, GIP, and then it turns on the receptors in the brain that tell you to eat less. The opposing group of neurons is called a GUTI-related protein. And these are a set of neurons that make you eat more. And long story short, what is now documented, proven, like established, is a smoking gun mechanism post-fat loss. And, it, and again, it's one of 30. But essentially what a group of scientists uh, out of Harvard were able to show in 2023 is that the number of synapses in the brain in the agouti-related complex tripled post-fat loss. Wow. So imagine a country road and you got a one-lane highway and only one car at a time can go down on the highway. And then all of a sudden, two other lanes appear. And now you have basically a highway. You, know, you, have, a, you have a synaptic superhighway now. And now three times the cars can go down that road. So post-fat loss, what has now been documented to take place is the neural, the neural inputs, the data, the, the push to eat is tripled. Tripled. Yes. And, and we can see the neurons tripling in the brain. We can see like, oh yeah, you're going to eat more. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> um, so that's one mechanism. And that's activated by uh, calorie cutting, caloric deficits, uh, and, it's, it's, and basically famine, starvation. And, so it's, and then that also explains why fasting works so good initially and then doesn't work at all later for a yes. lot of people. Um, so, and again, this goes back to what I talked about earlier. So this is compensation. So I said accumulation, degradation, compensation, attenuation. This is compensation. The compensation for the calorie cutting was to triple the neurons in the brain telling you to eat. Whoa, whoa. Now, we could just leave it at that and that would be kind of like all we'd ever need to say on the subject. Number one, prove this is a real thing. Um, but also, it changes our entire understanding of what we think fat loss is because we just think if I can just show the selfie, you know, with, with me 20 pounds lighter... I did it. It worked. Yeah, I figured it out. Yeah. But the reality, and it's, it's taken me decades to, to figure this out and to see it, is that's not the reality. The reality is chronic weight cycling. That's the reality for most people. Right. Now, 
on a bell curve, you're always going to see, you know, the outer edges of the curve. You know, someone did some diet and they kept it off. But the majority of the bell curve is going to have some degree of chronic weight cycling, meaning, you know, um, a few years go by, there's a rebound effect. I kind of regained it. I'm going to try something else now. And then what it culminates in by about the time you're 50 is it's very difficult to lose weight. It's very difficult, very difficult. And that that now touches into a bunch of other mechanisms, a bunch of other things that are kicking in now. Now that gets into um, physical, mechanical issues with um, fat cells that, you know, it's kind of like you've played that accordion one too many times and right. it's, not, it's not cooperating now and a bunch of other things. But um, all that to say, there is a, um, a very real compensatory effect for fat loss and it changes the entire dynamic of what we have thought of in terms of, well, how do we, how do we get where we want to go? Because the most important thing, it's, it's very hard to lose, lose fat, you know, very, very hard, you know, especially at certain points in time, but even harder is to beat the rebound. And so the rebound effect is really the thing that needs the focus and the attention to beat that rebound. Because if you don't compensate for the rebound, the highest probability is that within five years, you'll regain all the weight. And then, and then yep. it gets harder and harder and harder and harder. So. And the success rate of weight loss uh, retention is so minuscule. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's on par with addicts uh, having success with rehab. It's, it's like what, two to 5% of people actually might keep that weight off. And it's, that's the part where I, I had a lot of patients I had to get weight off of because I was doing regenerative injections on their joints. I was, I, you know, specialized in musculoskeletal conditions and we had to get weight off people for the sake of their joints. And if I had had a tool like a GLP-1 agonist at that time, it would have just been a godsend and a miracle. And I'm so tired of these fitness influencers and these health influencers, these purists who are like, oh, they just need to eat less and move more. I'm like, are you effing kidding me? I'm so sick of hearing that. They, I'm like, I basically want to be like, show me you have no idea how weight loss works in the brain or anywhere else in the body by, you know, <laughs> without actually saying it. Cause it's so ignorant and it's so short-sighted. And I've been very sorely disappointed with some people that I really, you know, respect. They just jump on the GLP ones are poison bandwagon. And I'm like, dude, the poison's in the dose, the poison's in the dose. And when you, if you overdose anybody on a drug or a peptide, you're going to have bad reactions, but yet we're not blaming the doctor or the dose. We're blaming the peptide. It's ridiculous. Anyway. Um, what do you, can you talk about how ghrelin and leptin fit into this rebound phenomenon and what's happening there? Is there a player there with like, that's why I'm guessing part of that, the fat cells, the accordion wearing out, but the signaling gets screwed up. Yeah, basically it's post-fat loss, ghrelin's higher, leptin's lower. And so ghrelin makes you eat more, um, leptin makes you eat less, but ghrelin's acute, leptin is long-term. So um, I hope I got that right. Sometimes I switch things around in my brain. I think I got that right. <laughs> no, I believe you're right. Yes, I know. I always mix those up too. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right because leptin resistance is the problem is a big problem in fat retention. Yes. Yeah, so, um, long story short, that uh, so post fat loss, one of the one of one of the ways one of the problems that we have to overcome is the disruptions and ratios of leptin to ghrelin. And so um, ghrelin is that hormone that um, is sky high prior to eating a meal and then you eat a meal and then ghrelin goes down. So it's acute, meaning short term. Um, leptin kind of works on a longer phase. It's more of like a just, you know, like a gradual uptick in terms of how much you're eating. But suffice to say that uh, post-fat loss, those are typically disrupted. And so you have an inversion of where they should be. And so really the trick is that we want 
leptin to be be higher. We want leptin to be, generally speaking, higher. Although not in all cases, you can have people that are have issues too much leptin already and they lose fat. But for most people, they're going to have this issue. And then the second thing is that the the increase in in ghrelin, the the static increase in serum ghrelin needs to go down post fat loss. And so you have to attack that as well. And it not not coincidentally, what's very interesting. Um, those two also tie into sleep quite a bit. So it's very interesting how these hunger hormones actually are sleep manipulators as well. So when we can suppress ghrelin and elevate leptin, and we can do that chronically um, and targeted, we can target like foods to help those hormones, then we actually sleep better, which gets to a whole other discussion of incorporating the idea of using food to drive sleep. And that's part of the equation when we get older is people start to get sleep disrupted as they get older. And so you have this kind of wheel with a bunch of spokes on it. One of them is, well, you're not sleeping as well. And because you're not sleeping as well, you're going to sleep worse. And because you're sleeping worse, you're getting insulin resistant. And then, you know, along with that, you're not making the glutathione you should. So the glycocalyx and the, the cardiovascular system is a mess. And then you're eating saturated fat. And that's now that's a problem. Um, inducing more insulin resistance. You don't have adiponectin stimulate. And all these things work together as one thing. But... Um, and that's the disaster. That that's when that was where I was. I was like, I am in the disaster. <laughs> I've got to pull out of this before it gets the best of me. Because, like you said, it's accumulative, and that you know that five pounds you gain that you don't get off because as it becomes more difficult. I used, to, like I said, I used to just think about weight loss, and I'd be like, oh, that five ten pounds will come right off. All of a sudden, it's like you know, I know how this is going to look at fifty-five and at sixty and at sixty-five, and this is not going to be pretty if I don't get on top of this. And I feel my heart goes out to these women who enter; they enter into their forties already in that hot mess, and it's just so hard. It's like ah, this is so hard to turn around, and it's going to be so much harder at fifty. This is why I preach muscle and you know, packing on as much as you can while you can't, while you still can. And it's so weird. People will come to me. I, I just got a message from a gal yesterday. She's like, and it was such a nice message. You know, I've lost 60 pounds and it's all because of you and everything you've taught me. And she just started strength training at the end of the 60 pound weight loss journey. And I was like, oh, if you had only been strength training from the onset and been accumulating muscle throughout this process, things would be much better. But yeah, it's, 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 um, whatever I hear, you know, um, people with a lot of influence putting out those platitudes like eat less, move more and all that stuff. I, I know they've never dealt with real populations of people. Like yes. I, I just, I know that like you've never dealt with people in the real world in significant numbers because what you, what you find when you do is that you can do the most precise calorie controlled diet in the world and won't put a dent in it and it won't just won't put in fact very often they gain weight on subcaloric diets you know i mean and that's a statement that a lot of guys would a lot of uh you know experts would be like prove it prove it prove it you know and no you can't there's no there's no proof that you you can gain weight on subcaloric diets i'm just saying i've seen it i've seen it enough times but but minimally what i've seen is that you you apply like kind of the the you know the calorie cutting approach and it, it does not work and it's because all these other mechanisms are like insulin resistance are kicking in and so these GLP drugs are a wonder because and I've had people accuse me of shilling for pharma because oh me too you know but it's because it's because I've just seen people where nothing works so many times that 
these things properly utilized are a wonder because number one, they allow you to like if like if it's possible to get weight off without them, then use them at the rebound. Use right. them at the rebound point, and that's you know that's 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 you'll kick the rebound that way. Or sometimes you just have people that just cannot drop body fat, and that's the uptick in insulin sensitivity from those things is the thing that was needed. So yes. you know, it's used strategically, they can be a very good thing. I mean, um, they're probably you know again attenuation. Um, you get five years in, the drug's probably not going to work anymore, but the goal should be to get you off them. So that's a combo. Or, or cycle them. Yeah, like any other peptide or hormone. You cycle it and you, you know, it's it's one of many tools. It's There's other tools. There's other peptides. There's other things we can do. And I think it's just, you know, it's, I, I firmly believe that w- the way they are being used commercially, more commercially is they are starting the dose too high. They're cranking the dose too high for too long and they're blowing out people's metabolism that way on the on the other end, you know, and they're really, I think there's going to be some serious receptor uh, downregulation. And, and, and I do believe that, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. There, there's a set point, right? Like I got to my set point. I got back to my weight, my normal, like fighting weight, like Dr. Tina's fighting weight is 135. That's where I am strong. I'm healthy. I'm thin. I fit in all my clothes. Everything's good. And uh, it brought me back down there and I can't budge below it. Now, if I want to crank the dose up and get start getting side effects, I can definitely get below that, but I know I'll rebound back to that. That's like my set point. And so I think that the, I, I mean, I'm experimenting with myself and some patients. I think the microdosing and keeping the dose as low as possible, cycling it, getting off of it, uh, allowing the refeed period, seeing how the body responds, like that's a big piece of this that I think allopathic medicine's missing, but they miss a lot of things. So <laughs> um, so you mentioned sleep and you you got me. I, I was already a super fan and then you made a reel about grilled cheese sandwiches at night. And I was like, I am I love this man's brain. <laughs> Because I've been doing that for a long time and I didn't actually know why it was working. But can you talk about the grilled cheese at night or the mac and cheese that's in your new book? Because I was like, this is so good. <laughs> yeah, sure. It, it, well, um, the first thing to preface the convo with is that um, if we accept the premise that food is the, the foundation of health, then the question that comes from that is, well, then, okay, how should we eat? And then how should we eat leads us into looking at, well, what are the pillars of health and you have to factor in sleep. You have to, like, you can't leave that out of the equation and you have to factor in the fact that uh, food impacts sleep. It's, and this is like, it's, it's not there. When you look at the diet landscape today, you look at carnivore, you look at keto, you look at, you know, low carb, high carb, it doesn't matter. There's no tactical implement of food specifically to drive sleep. It doesn't exist. Okay. And that, when you think about it, it's ridiculous. Cause when you look at the, when you look at the research on this, what, immediately pops up is that the hunger hormones and the feeding hormones directly impact REM sleep. They directly impact sleep quality. They impact sleep fragmentation. Meal patterns and sequences of eating directly impact sleep. I mean, I don't do a lot of coaching anymore, but um, I have uh, you know clients that I've worked with who <clears throat> we just cannot not give them breakfast because what we do when we give them breakfast is particularly a high carb breakfast is their sleep onset is much earlier and they sleep much better later at night. And so it just gets to the, the body's sleep clocking mechanisms are, they're not just diurnal. They're not just driven by light and dark. They're driven by feeding cycles. You can prove this in two seconds by looking at hamsters and mice and all that, or look at babies. When you feed a baby, the first thing you do is go to sleep. So 
um, there's been this overemphasis on light and dark cycles. And I might be partially responsible for that because in, in 2016, when I was writing the immunity code, nobody was talking about that. And I put that in there. But one of the things I did try to put in the first book was that an equal way out with uh, food, food, food drives sleep too. Food's very important. And so when you look at the foods that promote sleep onset, the, um, carbohydrates are very much in the picture. And it's a very interesting thing when you look at... Um, People with uh, problems like uh, weight problems, typically you'll find in the real world that they have very stressful lives, stressful jobs. And so they come home and they are giving themselves a natural cortisol and natural sleep remedy, which is typically alcohol and carbs. They'll do wine and they'll do carbs. And that takes the stress out, takes, you know, more, you know, and it does help them wind down, does get cortisol down, does help them get to sleep. Not the best thing long term, <laughs> but right. you can take that same notion and just apply it strategically, which is okay, carbs. Um, particularly certain types of cards combined with other types of foods, they are very, very useful at helping us to get to sleep. And what's mm -hmm. recently kind of, there have been compounds that are involved in this that, you know, peptides that we can now look at that are in certain types of cards. Dairy, for example, dairy has um, carbs with, or peptides with very big names and they're sleep inducing. Um, they actually drive sleep onset and they do this apart from the action on the large neutral amino acids. So apart from the action on, you know, um, serotonin and, you know, driving all this stuff, um, they, they also have peptides that drive sleep. So all that to say, meal patterns, sequences and the types of foods can have a big impact on sleep. And some of the easy ones are periodic, very large meals at breakfast with a lot of carbohydrates um, and, and, and a, a decent amount of protein, that's going to advance the sleep clock. It, it's going to make you want to sleep earlier at night and you're going to sleep better um, because what you're doing is elevated ghrelin in the serum is going to disrupt sleep. So what ghrelin does is it increases one type of sleep at the expense of another. So you get less REM sleep, more non-REM sleep, but you get more sleep fragmentation when ghrelin's high. It's super easy to prove because ghrelin's a hunger hormone. So try being starving in sleep. It's very, it's hard. Oh, and it's that's no one, good. Yeah. That's <laughs> one of the reasons that fasting ex for extended periods begins to have an impact on sleep. And that's one of the failings of the influencer community, which is, you know, you have a bunch of people who never fasted, jumping on the fasting bandwagon, going, it's the cure-all, it's the answer, it's everything. Well, they never factored in sleep. And they never factored in ghrelin. They never factored in yeah. how these things play out. So um, all that to say, these hunger hormones, um, when we get them down, we're going to sleep better. And again, you don't need an expert. This is sense. Like go eat, go eat a 3,000 calorie meal and try and stay awake. Watch what happens. You, no, you're, you're right out. <laughs> you know, just go, you go right out. <laughs> so um, the, the, one of the things in my first book was um, a hack that I've been using in my nutrition system going back into the 2000s. And that was a grilled cheese sandwich at night with sourdough and cheese and all that. And essentially what you get out of that is you get these really cool sleep peptides and cheese and dairy, and then you get stimulation of the right amino acids. And so um, that combined with a, an insulin pulse, there's good research showing that like kind of a small insulin centric meal at bedtime is going to help sleep. So those things together, they work to drive sleep onset. And then in the new book, I kind of took it a step further with a recipe where we added in nutmeg. And so nutmeg has myristocin, which um, is kind of a, it's kind of a psychedelic. And it, if you get too much of it, it's, it's not good. But just in you know, dietary amounts in a meal, it helps sleep onset. And then you combine that with dairy, um, it, it really helps sleep. And so that combined with carbs, mac and cheese and all that, it just helps sleep. So, and, and we can tweak it by the meal patterns that we use. So um, basically what I show in the new book is you just engineer around it. So you, you have the carbs at night and the following morning is a strategic short fast. So we're offsetting 
kind of any weight gain from that. And then earlier yes. in the day, we're having these insulin sensitizing meals leading up. And then you have an insulin sensitizing preload meal prior to that mac and cheese. So um, we're, we're doing kind of all the GLP-1 actions without the drugs. Um, that's not to say that food can ever mimic drugs. It can't. Um, the GLP that you're going to get from food doesn't work the same as the drugs. The drugs, it's a, it's a GLP synthetic that lasts much longer, just works better. Um, but we can combine both. We can learn different ways of staggering and sequencing foods to drive parameters like sleep, immunity, and all these other cool things. Yes, that's what I loved about your book and both your books and your Instagram is you talk about staggering your meals strategically on certain days and doing things specifically. You even talked about at one point, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you were talking about getting the actual size of the bolus of food to hit for specific reasons. Can you talk about that? Mm, yeah. Well, it's a very important thing. So, um, so you know, physical dimension in the body is a programmatic thing. And, and I'm talking pointy head language, but I just mean that it's so ingenious in the way it works. Um, one of the um, one of the signal mechanisms in the body is when stuff gets poked out, like distended or, you know, physicality, it programs things. And so um, it's very important periodically to have like a, like a thick bolus just pass through the digestive tract, you know, something kind of big and thick. And because it affects a lot of things, it, it affects um, very specific hormones related to feeding. So all of those hormones like cholestokinin and, you know, NPYY and, you know, ghrelin, all those hormones are affected by it. But also, um, it can act as a, a brush in a lot of ways. So as it's going through the digestive tract, if you have the right foods in there, those foods are making contact in 360 degrees as they go through the gut. And that's why foods, that's why supplements can't mimic foods because yes. you can take a supplement but doesn't have the physical properties of a food. So it's just an important thing to do periodically um, for a number of different reasons. Um, sleep onset is one of them. So having a really big breakfast in the morning, it's also a really good way to offset um, weight gain from dropping fat. And what it gets us into though, the bigger topic is that something I talk about in the new book is that um, if you just think about this for a minute, it, it will make so much sense and it, it will transform how you think about food. And it's it's basically this, it's that everybody gets that nature naturally optimizes like kind of that's no brainer like like being in nature you know aligning the body with light and dark you know it optimizes getting your feet in the dirt kind of optimizes you know being being near the ocean or in the forest you know forest bathing and that it optimizes so that's an easy thing to get um and once you once you accept that as a premise and it's it, not too hard to prove um the next level of that is that nature has a meal plan in and of itself. And it's super easy to replicate, super easy to prove. And it basically is this, it's that famine and foraging go together and then that's followed by feasting. Mm -hmm. And anyone, you don't need any expert to tell you this, you just need to go take a survival course what's going to happen is they'll teach you some stuff, you know, spend a day teaching you and then they set you loose. And first thing you know, you're, you're foraging and you're going hungry. 
while you're foraging because yeah. the things you're foraging <laughs> for aren't things I would pick per se. They're not my first pick. I mean, they're they're the last resort. The, the Hadza has a word for that. They have a they have a word for the foods of last resort, which is the roots. You know, they'll eat the roots, as, but they prefer like the honey if they can find it, or they prefer sure. the meat if they can get it. But so in the process of trying to get the foods of higher preference, the feast, you know, that the, the you know, wow, we landed a salmon or, you know, we, we got a, we got a water, water buffalo, you know, we got something substantial, you know, you're, you're, you're eating mushrooms, you're eating roots, you're eating the odd berry that you find, you're eating greens, whatever, just whatever, you know, it's not preferential foods. The, the interesting thing though, is that that's always gone together all throughout history. Um, famine to, or famine with foraging. In other words, not eating, being hungry and foraging, they go together. And what's really interesting, I, I think I make a pretty good case for this in the new book. I hope I did. It's that um, they are actually highly synergistic and they optimize and they are part of nature's plan to offset the detrimental effects of opposing food groups. So we live in this era where, you know, everybody's siloed up into, you know, the meat tribe and the vegan tribe and, you know, and the, the oxalate tribe and, you know, don't eat our, don't eat those foods. Those are the bad ones. We got the good ones. You eat our food. That's the key. Our food's yeah. the way, right? <laughs> well, here's the thing that they have all, all of them missed completely. And it's, and, and we're going to prove this in just a second. It's really funny. Um, the opposing foods the, the foods you're demonizing, those are the foods that actually protect you from the toxic effects of the foods that you're advocating. And, and yes. that's nature's meal plan. So nature is set up in such a way where you can't get too much of anything, you know? And that's the way it was, was for who knows how many thousands of years. It's, it's, with no refrigerators, it's hard to get too much of anything. Right. So you're going to have you're going to have famine with foraging. You're going to have a feasting. You can have feasting in the middle of a famine. You just got lucky and got something, but there isn't much. And then you have a season of abundance. Season of abundance is, you know, whatever. We caught like a herd and we're going to make beef jerky and eat good for three months, you know. But, but then there's, you're back to the, you know, famine, feasting, foraging. Well, what you find is that there's an interesting synergy between all of those foods in that pattern. And it's a sequence. It's a natural sequence. It's, you know, set me loose on my survival course. You know, first thing, uh, couldn't get, you know, trying to get some fish, nothing going. I'm just... I'm um, going to dig up some roots and I found some mushrooms and, you know, I'm eating these foods. Those foods stimulate the commensal bacteria in the gut that amplify all of the longevity pathways that happen in foraging or rather in famine. So there is a natural synergy between going hungry and foods of lesser preference you find when foraging. They, they, they work together to extend lifespan. Yeah. And then the really interesting thing, and this is... um. So fascinating once you begin to look at like the cardiovascular system and insulin, they all work together to maximize uh, fitness and minimize toxicity. So example would be, let's go back to meat for a sec because the meat tribe likes to vilify um, oxalate containing foods. Okay, spinach and, you know, and green leafy, we don't want to eat those, you know, it's, or roots, you know, like carbs, ah, bad. Well, it turns out that the bacteria that, are spun up during the foraging famine phase are the very bacteria that protect you from the toxic bacteria like fusobacteria. So, you, so you're going to eat those foods, those foods, like you found some berries, you found some roots, you found, you know, those, those, the starches, the resistant starches, the phenols, they feed the commensal bacteria like bifidobacteria, like acromantia. And then as a result, you don't ferment the toxic metabolites from meat fermentation. So... Right. This complete opposite 
reality, which is the real truth, emerges, which is these food tribes are all spun up trying to, you know, make one food the hero and the other the villain. And it turns out that the villain they're pointing to is the one that saves you from the, the liabilities okay. of your hero. And it really, you can prove it. You can prove it going down the list for just about any food. And so it brings us to this really interesting premise. And again, I keep repeating myself here. You don't need, you don't need an expert, just need sense to figure this out. The driving force behind all diet ancestrally is scarcity. Scarcity is the story of ancestral eating. All eating revolved around scarcity. And scarcity has a really interesting effect. It drives forces, variety in the diet. Scarcity will force you to have a, a varied diet, to eat things you didn't prefer to eat. Like if you, if you had a refrigerator standing by, I'm, I'm hitting the ribeyes up, right? Right. But if you don't, you know, well, I, I, that bok choy is looking pretty good right about now. So, so scarcity forces variety into the diet. And then the net of variety is variety protects against toxicity. That's, and that, that's, that's, that, that's going to hold up. That'll hold up the scrutiny. That, and that destroys most of the diets of this era once you really get your arms around that. Because the thing is, you can kick the tires on that and keep kicking them and it's not going to fall apart. It's going to hold up the scrutiny. It makes total sense. And I've cut entire food groups out of my diet before and felt terrible. And I've overindulged in entire food groups before and felt terrible. And I have realized that just going back to the way, actually the way my mentor taught me to eat, which was very simple. Um, you know, we cook the, we cook the, we cook the vegetables to the point where, well, it's just old naturopathic medicine. Like you cook things down until the gut will tolerate them well. And you, you know, you denutralize some of those toxins that those plant toxins carry that, you know, and you, if you avoid a food, you avoid it for a time until you heal the gut with the intention of healing the gut, not just taking it out forever. And you bring them back, you reintroduce them as tolerated and you reintroduce them however you must. If you must, if you must cook it to mush or steam it to mush, then you do initially until that person can tolerate those things. Like taking whole, you know, I took FODMAPs out of my diet for a long time and that was a disaster at the end of the day. You know, it's just, it's just, so it's, it's that it's, and I've been guilty of it. And this is why I don't talk much. People really want me to talk about food and diet often. And I don't, because I'm like, I don't have, you know, your, your answer is it. It's like, and, and like you say in your books, the, the timing of this matters. And so it's not as simple as like hit this every morning, seven days a week. It's, you know, and you've actually shown on your Instagram different foods that you're eating at that time and place. And you explain why. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Cause you're just using common sense. And like you said, going back to, uh, you know, optimal timing. So no, I get it. And then you mentioned longevity. I was watching a movie or a program called a small light. And it was about, um, it, it was it was about Anne Frank and her family. And it was such a good series. I think it's on I want to say it's on Netflix. It was so good. But uh, my husband mentioned, he said, you know, a lot of the survivors of that whole time period lived for so long. And I was like, well, that's because they starved. Unfortunately, it was terrible. They've starved for a long time. And, you know, longevity is, it comes in food restriction at times too, right? But we can't do that forever because then you start sloughing off the insides of your gut lining and you start living off of, the, you know, your own tissues. It's a mess. And so there's just, I love that idea of like foraging and famine and then feasting and, and just bringing it back to that sort of primal set. I think we had that, you know, back 
you're old enough to remember this, like the whole paleo movement, you know, Rob Wolf was actually on a program where I, that's the first place I saw him actually was he was like bow hunting on this program, this reality show. Do you know about this? He was on a reality show where they threw them all out there and that like people had to leave the show because they were starving to death. And Rob Wolf finally took an elk down with a bow and fed the whole group. And he was the hero. They like kept it in the creek to keep it cold. And it was a big, and I was like, this guy's freaking awesome. And then I found out he wrote a book and, you know, anyway, uh, that's when I started seeing that in the you know, going around. And I think I was still just, or I was just getting out of school then. But anyway, the paleo movement, but even they talk about rotation. <laughs> there's there's rotation in the diet. And I think we've lost rotation in the diet. We're, we're just now, like you said, in these tribes, these hardcore tribes. And man, they're fervent online. Why is that? It's got to be something to do with oxytocin or something. Like you, you question someone's dietary tribe and they lose their freaking minds. It's wild. That's a really interesting point. I actually, in my new book, had to spend two full chapters on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't read those chapters yet because I do not understand it. Yeah, no, it's, 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 um, it, it gets to the issue of, um, it's basically, the, the, so high level, the problem in diet is confusion. That's the problem because you don't know who to believe. You know, uh, and you have people on both sides, all sides, you know, with PhDs and MDs and all, all kinds of well-credentialed people saying totally opposite things, you know. And so the average, the average person is just super confused. They don't know who to believe. Um, and when you break that problem down and go, well, well what's going on here? Um, it, you, what you quickly come to is, well, the issue is authority. That's the issue. Um, and then when you break that problem down, what you find is that that's a problem actually that is much bigger than diet. It goes way beyond diet. Um, that is a problem facing all of society right now. And essentially the problem is that we are in an era where um, thought itself is compromised because truth is compromised. We're, we're in an era where the concept of truth is under assault. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting when you trace this back. So when... What's happened is historically, people groups had a shared set of organizing principles from which they could derive sense and they could make sense of reality. Okay. And this was true of, you know, the world pretty much until about the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And what you have now is um, that doesn't exist anymore. You don't, you don't have a shared common organizing framework to, to parse the world with. And so the result of that um, has been when you have no common framework, then the sense that is common to all goes with it. Ah. Okay? The sense that was once common to all that was based on that common framework is gone. So when you don't have common sense anymore, or the sense that it's common to all, then you have an over-reliance on authority and authority figures and institutions mm -hmm. to tell you truth, which they are more than happy to appropriate. Um, the only problem is they have a terrible track record with truth. Like when you look at historically what happens when institutions and authority figures want to claim the high ground of truth, that never has worked out good ever. Never has right. worked out good because uh, retaining power is antithetical to truth, okay, in a lot of ways. So what you have now effectively um, it amounts to um, a number of different pathways that all end up at animal training. Essentially, it's 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 society wide animal training where um, some have called the problem we're in now a post truth to society. Okay, and it's it's really astounding that 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 could be sort of a thing like like oh yeah this is the post truth society. Well, the problem with that is that 
truth has an ancestral imperative. When you look at truth, truth has always been the absolute quintessential first survival principle because truth is connected to reality. So when you lose the ability to discern what's true, you lose the ability to see what's real and true. And, and human populations have always put the highest value on sanity and truth because you're dead without it. Like in a survival situation, when you disconnect from reality, you're going to be dead really, really fast. Okay. And so when you look historically, um, the embracing of, of non-reality was shunned. Like if a person embraced non-reality, they were shunned. They were out of the group. You know, because that's a threat to the whole group. Insanity is a threat to the group. When you look at the sequence, when insanity takes place in a person or a cult or a people group or a society, death always, always follows. It's just a question of when, okay? Because the thing that keeps you alive is being able to see reality. When you can't see reality, you know, you're, I can think I'm a carrot. I'm not a carrot. You know, I can believe I can levitate. Doesn't mean I can levitate, you know? And I, so what we're seeing now is, this society-wide disconnection from reality at the meta level. And what that's resulted in is that it's more difficult to discern what's true in all silos of knowledge. And mm -hmm. so the net of that is that two things. Number one, you get tribes. Um, and tribes basically roll up into authority figures. And then all, all that's needed is the authority figures just need to conflict. That's all that has to happen. You know, I get it all the time. I get like um, people like, you know, I'll put something out about like... Um, the gut biome detoxifies oxalates and I'll have the oxalate tribe attack me like, you know, because their authority figure said that's not true, you know, and I'm threatening their view of reality. That's what's going on. And so yeah. you know, it's, it's like I've, I've triggered a religious cult and they come at me and then they call in their authority figure, you know, and then we go rounds and all that stuff. But the, the pro all that to say, the problem itself is not a problem of diet. This is a, this is a system-wide problem where what has happened is the sense that was once common to all is gone and truth telling is attacked. And in a, in a, and, and it's funny in diet, you can see the down trickle into this. Like for example, um, if I go online, I start talking about, you know, the reality of being overweight that you're going to predispose, you know, this and that, and this and that I'll get attacked for fat shaming. Okay. You know, or I'm, I'm weight insensitive or I don't respect weight diversity, you know, all this crazy stuff, you know, and it's crazy because I'm just speaking truth, but you, but you be attacked for telling truth. There was a study that I talk about in the new book where something fascinating, um, a bunch of teens were, were studied in the early 2000s and they were all overweight and to a one, they could all identify, yeah, I'm overweight. I know I'm overweight. And then what happened is post 2012, same, same questionnaire, same set of questions were put to overweight teens and they could not identify as overweight. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not overweight. Even though like, no, the scale says you are, you know, like all the numbers say you are. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And so what you're seeing is this society-wide disconnection from reality. And it is the result of abandoning what we once had in terms of shared principles to organize and make sense of the world. And you see the trickle down in diet because the, the parameter for diet used to be that we could, we all had the same, we all had the same organizing principle. It was that a healthy diet was diverse, nutrient dense, included, you know, meats, fruits, grains, nuts, you know, that was the standard. And if, and if you were to try to talk outside that, it'd have been ridiculous. Like, no, dude, that's not a healthy balanced diet. Now you have the exact opposite. Now what you have is the way to get to health is through non-diversity. The way you get to health is through exclusion is through niching down and just focusing on just these foods or rather 
the way I put it is imbalance. The way to health is to imbalance something, which is a perfect example of disconnecting from reality. The reality is this body works on homeostasis. It is a masterwork of balance and too much of anything, doesn't matter what it is, will disrupt that in some way and that will create some health condition. And and you and you can verify this for yourself, you know, just using sense. It's like, you know, if you if you talk to someone about like in the meat tribe, like you could get too much meat. How dare you? You know, you get that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, or if you say like to the oxalate tribe, you know, no, you, you really need green leafies in the diet. They they're they're essential for the, the to solve the uh, glycocalyx and the NOx problem. How dare you? You know, it's just you get this hyperpolarization, tribalization. And that is the result of um there have been very, very specific, some say intentional um, techniques that have been directed at everybody. One of those is called axiomatic by induction. And an axiom is something that we just generally believe to be true, you know? Mm-hmm. We will, but, but we don't... How do we know that it's true? Well, we know it's true because authority figures repeat it. Well, yep. Yeah, but does that make it true? Well, of course it's true because everybody says it's true, okay? So when enough authority figures repeat something long enough, then it becomes induced. It becomes, you know, just part of what you think is true. And, and it's, again, that's a form of animal training. It's rewarding people for thought compliance. And we live in an age that could, that it's really interesting. I talk about this in the new book. It's the, the promise of the age of reason was that we would level up, that the individual would level up into greater degrees of reality. And what took place this is the biggest irony in all of history is the exact opposite. Yep. The individual has leveled down. <laughs> into mental hegemony, mental submission. It's wild. It's been wild to watch throughout my lifetime. And I just, I just, uh, I have to sit back and laugh at it at this point. You know, it's like every man and woman for themselves. (laughs) The smart ones are going to stick together and we're going to make it. And, you know, the, the easily brainwashed, I'm not so sure, but uh, that's, that's, I swear I could talk to you for hours about this. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I, I mean, I put it as a thing in the new book, which is that the way out of this is to return to sense. That's yes. the way out, you know, because there's a concept called nonage. Have you heard of that before? Mm-mm. So nonage is a, it's a word that um, Kant spoke about it. It refers to an inability to rely on your own sense apart from someone else. So it's a psychological dependence. Oh no, that sounds terrible. Well, that's the age we're in. We're in the era of nonage or, and specifically to diet. We're in the era of diet nonage. And nonage, all nonage requires is um, induction. That's all it requires. You just, you just basically listen to authority figures and, you know, and just in, things become axiomatic by induction. Sense requires deduction. Sense requires you to deduce what is true and a lack of psychological dependence. And it requires a common framework to parse reality with. And that's the problem. And that's a, that's a you know, that problem, <clears throat> the inability to parse reality for what it is. Um, but the thing about that is reality has a way of coming upon you very hard and very fast. Um, when you look at history, Basically, you kind of see this, you know, pattern of people coming out of hardship and building something great because they've been plugged into reality through hardship. And then about three, four generations down, everybody's just partying and that's all they care about. 
you know, and then they're just completely out of touch with reality. And then somewhere, somehow reality comes in hard and fast yep. and you lose just about everybody. And the survivors of that are reconnected to reality. And it just gets back to the ancestral tenant that survival is the original biohack. Like, yeah. And, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. And it relies on sense. It relies on seeing reality as it is like, like, yeah, no, you, you really don't want to cross that freeway. It's not a good idea. You know, bad, bad, don't do that. You know, seeing reality as it is. And that's, that's the system, systemic problem is a disconnection from reality. And it's trickled down into diet in a number of ways. Oh, I love that. I think that's the perfect place to leave this because you just summarized it all beautifully. And you're so right. You know, survival is the ultimate biohack and, and that's that. I have so enjoyed talking to you, Joel. I hope you'll come back. There's I'm gonna there's so much more to your book I'm gonna read and then gonna pick your brain on it. So we would love to have you back on. Where can everybody find you? Where's the best place for them to go to get more of this? I know you're on Instagram. I'll make sure to hook that uh, link up, but where else? Yeah, I'm also on X now or Twitter. Um, and I like that right now, at least because I can I can talk a little more freely than I can on Instagram. So I, I include more stuff like the last 15 minutes on there. So definitely love to get your follow me on X. I'm just starting out there. Follow me on Instagram. And then you can go to veepnutrition.com is my website. And we've got uh, all kinds of goodies there for you. And then on my Instagram, I have a f- huge amount of free content. Um, you just click on the link in my bio and you'll see what's called the Young Body Challenge. And I got everything in there. I got like my gut reset. I've got like sprinting in 90 days and all kinds of cool stuff. And it's all free. So Yeah, no, you are a, a rich resource of information. And I was so glad to stumble upon your content and find you. So thank you so much for making the time to come on the show today. And I'll make sure all the links are hooked up there. And uh, yeah, any parting thoughts you want to leave the audience with? Um, Just re- return to sense. Yes, please, God. <laughs> Let's make that our 2024 motto, right? <laughs> our, our survival depends on it. Yes. Thank you, Joel, for coming on the show. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.